The following program may contain explicit language. It's Friday, November 20th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Trump de-election team's effort suffered another setback. Although at this point, isn't it like characterizing flat earthers' efforts to write geography textbooks to fit their standards as a setback? It's not really a setback. It's more like the Trump's de-election team got more pieces of data that uniformly indicate they have absolutely no chance of making the case that they can't prove because it didn't happen. So to catch you up, uh, you might have heard that Jenna Ellis, before she took the job as Trump's legal advisor, called him an idiot and added in 2016, here's the truth. His supporters don't care about facts or logic. They aren't seeking truth. And this is the cumulative reason why this nation is in such terrible shape. We don't have truth seekers. We have narcissists. That's, that's good. She nailed it. So that was 2016. Today, we found out that Trump's lawyer in Pennsylvania, Mark Scaringi, was on his own radio show less than two weeks ago saying this. In my view, the litigation will not work. It will not reverse this election. He is right, but Trump's strategy isn't actually to win in court. Not actually. It'd be nice, I guess, to him if it happened. It's not really even to successfully lie to most of his people so they still like him. Trump's de-election strategy is to create enough momentum within specific Republican circles that a handful of officials state legislators believe that it is in their interest to toss out the results in their state and to send a Trump-supporting slate of electors to the Electoral College. It's wildly implausible, it's probably unconstitutional, and it's totally indefensible. However, I took a look at the numbers involved, and it is just glaring that there are the numbers involved, and it's glaring how few people would have to conspire and do a terrible thing to give it a shot. Let's take three states, Michigan, Arizona, and either Pennsylvania or Georgia. If three, all three of those states change, so definitely Michigan, definitely Arizona, and either Pennsylvania or Georgia, if any of those states have legislatures that assert, actually, this is the actual result, it could force a constitutional crisis. Michigan, how many people would have to make this decision in Michigan? You'd need 56 votes in the Michigan House of Representatives. There are 58 Republicans there, and you'd need 20 of the 22 Republican senators to vote your way. Total of 76 Michiganders. In Arizona, it's 47. Georgia and Pennsylvania do have large houses of representatives and General Assembly in Georgia, but it comes out to something like um, 91 Georgians in their General Assembly, and the requisite number of senators would be 29 senators, and you'd get 120 Georgians, plus your Arizonans, plus your Michigans. It comes out to convince, cajole, threaten, or bribe about 243 people, 243 Republicans, most of whom probably like Trump anyway, or at least see their interests aligned with his. And the Trump de-election team can try to execute this strategy. I think it'll never work. I think we won't even get there. I think it's farcical, but it is not impossible. 243 Republicans, some of whom who would never go for it, but many would, are the difference between this ridiculous plan taking us to the brink and it never having a chance. So I say, come on, 243 Republican state legislators, stand up and say no, or at least 
don't return Trump's calls. You can do it. Or actually, to be specific, you could not do it. It's all riding on you. On the show today, a Danish study casts shade on the idea that masks protect the wearer. Well, except in the Danish territory of Denmark, which doesn't experience sunrises on the winter solstice, therefore no chance of shade. But first, comedian, author, actress, and yes, podcaster, Sarah Silverman joins me. What are the chances that a comedian has a podcast? And that that podcast is called the Sarah Silverman Podcast. Oh, given the precondition that the comedian in question is in fact Sarah Silverman. We get into Sarah's politics, her change in comedy philosophy, and her grappling with bits of the past. Not the little fragments of the past and scattered pictures like the corner of our minds. I'm talking about the shtick of yesteryear. I found Sarah to be exceptionally open to the idea of change in a way that few people are. And that conversation is up next. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. Sarah Silverman is out with a new podcast, and uh, she adheres to her standard naming convention. This is the woman who gave us the Sarah Silverman Show, and I Love You America with Sarah Silverman. Her podcast is the Sarah Silverman Podcast, and it is it is very much a nonfiction slice of Sarah's life in which she answers questions that are recorded in voicemail, and sometimes from there lets us know her philosophy, and sometimes from there, you know, tries to rethink her own. Sarah, welcome to The Gist. Thanks for coming on. Hey, cool. Uh, my pleasure. I'm a fan. That's excellent. Thank you. Yeah. You're, you're far more, you are far more articulate than myself. <laughs> <laughs> but what you do is you search out those moments of inarticulation and then you find and hone the great bit. And that to me is something that's always escaped me. Like I could speak for hours and do some pretty good stuff. But when you go on stage for a one hour session, it's also finely crafted. I don't know. It's always been hard for me to master that. I'm a very slow honer with my standup. But, you know, this podcast has been very freeing and a huge, um, it continues to be a big lesson, you know, because it's, it's immediate and it's, the things I love about her are also things that I'm not used to. It's 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 really loose. It's really messy. You know, I'll listen back and go, oh, this would have been so much better said this way. Yes. Or, you know, I form, I, I form my opinion or am able to articulate it so much better days later. But there is something about the immediacy of it and the messiness of it that I I'm into, right? You know, I think it's kind of neat. Do you ever get material for, I don't know if you're thinking of doing material, it's hard in a pandemic, but is any of the stuff that you talk about on the podcast, do you think any of it will ever become something that could be in your act? Yeah, I mean, I'm hoping that that's the case, you know, but it's just, it's all so, um, it comes out of my mouth and I really don't think about it again, but if I force myself to listen back, I can see where things can be honed into something you know, funnier. Yes. 
And uh, it's just like in stand-up. You know, I record my stand-up as most comics do, but listening back is like you've got to really force yourself to, yeah, i got to listen to this. It always yields, you know, new thoughts, you know. So I want to ask about the uh, I Love You, America with Sarah Silverman and the couple segments you did where you went to Louisiana and Wyoming, right? And yeah, Chalmette. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you lived with families, and these were families who were definitely Republican, and you bonded with them, and you got to see their perspective, and they saw yours. And so I think that's a great lesson. But my question is, in a way, I mean, as I was thinking of this lesson— I never thought that humans, human beings, Americans, were so distant that that couldn't be possible on a personal level. But since policy and politics isn't made on a personal level, does that experiment give us hope? Or in a way, is it a little bit dispiriting? I'll give you an If the Shia and the Yazidis are not getting along because the Shia think the Yazidis are worshiping the devil, well, then you can understand it. But if people from Wyoming and Minnesota are so far apart, what hope do we have to ever come together politically? Yeah, I was thinking about this this morning. I go, man, we're so divided. It probably would take an alien invasion for us to come together. Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah, um, that's the premise of the Watchmen, know, cla- right? It is. <laughs> yeah, the- I watched the Watchmen, <laughs> the original comic book. They they like fake oh, they faked it. an alien invasion to make the countries of the world come together. Oh yeah. right, the uh, squid. Yeah, that's it. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah, of course. I love how we casually um, ruin the Watchmen for people. Sorry, no, that's <laughs> not that. That's not any of the best. It's so good. The series was unbelievable. It's just one season of genius. Yeah. Anyway, um, I think we are divided because we have been consciously divided by entities. Mm-hmm. So willfully, mindlessly, cult-like divided, that it's just, it feels impossible to undo, but I try to remain hopeful. Well, you do, and you I think you model perspective-taking on your show, and I think the experiments on the Hulu show... Well, that show's canceled. Yeah. No, no, no. The the po- on the, what I'm saying is I think oh, the podcast oh, is exactly that. And when someone calls in and they're almost all fans, no one, I haven't heard anyone really tear into you, but say, hey, you misgendered me or hey, you described what sexual orientation is is incorrectly or even that it exists. On the show, you're never defensive. You're always like, thanks, I'm trying to learn. I'm almost 50. I love, I, I wish other people could have this gift I seem to have been given where I just, I love learning new things. Being wrong never feels shitty to me. I, like, I'm with I, you. I love being changed with new information. Me too. Like, I'm totally down. So I was thinking about the incident where in, what was it, 2006, you did blackface on your show and you've talked mm-hmm. about that. And then I listened to the interview you did with Bill Simmons last year. So this is just last year. And in that interview, yeah. which was after a GQ interview. I feel bad because he really took on that fight and Bill Maher went crazy. Yeah, yeah. And the truth is, I understand it. It's a consequence. That is that is what I'm getting at. It seemed to me that the tone from when you were talking to Bill Simmons was to let listeners know because you did this old sketch that you certainly regret doing and realize now yeah. you realize now why it was wrong. Of course. Comedy has consequences and that's the risk of it. Yeah. And if you don't accept them, then don't be a comedian. So 
I just had to go, well, that was a consequence, wasn't it? You know? My observation is, first of all, I was totally with you on the 2019 interview. You can really make a strong point that says, a thing I did in the name of comedy that n- might not have worked artistically is now getting me fired from a job, whatever it is, 11 years later. Just think about that. You know, there are nuances to it. So I was with you. Yes. But my observation is that the tone was that not only did you understand why the producers fired you, you were sympathetic to their call. Maybe you didn't say that's what you would have done, but you did articulate, look, you know, it could have, it's a small movie, right? It could have, and and a year ago- They you don't were, need to, yeah. it, you know, so many things can can kill a project that hundreds of people work so hard on because of bad press or someone's connected to it or something. And I I don't think that would have happened yes. because I t- I've always talked openly about it. You know, I sent them the episode. I did an entire episode on I Love You America about it. I said, you know, listen, I, you know, but that's their call. And I'm not saying this as a representation of how it should be with everyone. I also talk about cancel culture and how there has to be a path to redemption. Right. Do you want people to be changed or do you want people to stay the same so you can point to them as wrong and yourself as right? And I, you know, I, I call it righteousness porn. But as a comedian, I say it's a little different. And, you know, some people say, like, well, art should have some leeway. And and I love that. That works great for me. But I also think as a comedian, when you take risks and chances, those risks, risks mean consequences. So to a degree, I go, you know, look, no one's hiring me for a, a mainstream commercial. I got the best skin in the business. But you don't see me on a Nutrigena ad. You can't even ad. see pores. You know, I got teeth, I have pearly teeth for days. But you're not going to see me in a mainstream ad because I'm divisive. But that's something I have to accept. That's the comedy I do. And, you know, it comes with it. You can't complain if it's what you do, you know. Do you think that in the last year you've evolved even more? Because what I'm saying is I sense an evolution from how you framed it in 2019 to how you talk about it now. Yes. You know, I'm not patting myself on the back. I just, I like learning new stuff. You know, I'm going to look back on this interview in 10 years and cringe at how problematic it is. You know, that's called evolution. Yeah. It's progress. I mean, that's why, like, I think of myself as a progressive and I love Bernie and Warren and I'm a democratic socialist. But even on that side, I see there's so much um, absolutism. And I'm like, how can that be progressive? That means to change progress, you know? There, we really are not that different, but our labels and our language, you know, not only do we not have a shared truth, we don't have shared language anymore. You know, we can't use the same language. We've got to boil shit down. Yeah. And I think Bernie does that well. And I, I think that's what I can do too, to a degree is it's not dumbing it down. I just think the most important stuff is real, real, real simple. Yeah, well, I thought it was the 2016 DNC where you and Al Franken kind of said to the Bernie people, guys, get some perspective here. Yeah, what happened was <laughs> conventions are, you know, like it's people with like styrofoam hats with a million pins on it. Yeah. And and I saw some fringe Bernie or bust and they were just beat red screaming in the faces of Hillary supporters. You know, like, I'm Bernie. I wasn't big on Hillary, but of course I voted for Hillary. I came out and spoke on behalf of her because Bernie asked me to. And I wanted her to be president. But to see these people just scream, you know, on the floor of this 
you know, stronger together thing. And I just said, I was talking to specific people. I go, you know, you Bernie or bust people are being ridiculous. (laughs) And of course the Hillary people loved it. And Bernie people were very angry at me for a long time and some still are, but I was just literally talking to the people on the floor and it was true. I mean, there is... You're also literally embodying what Bernie's message was about that issue. Like, you, my most ardent supporters, are better coming along with the Hillary campaign. I think history proved that right. What makes me crazy is the Hillary people that say that Bernie didn't, like, show up for her. He went to more states than she did. He busted his ass for her. And it, I just... I don't know. I... Anyway, listen, I'm so grateful Biden's president and, you know, I I look forward to being able to complain about a Biden presidency. That would be a dream come true. I'd be so happy, you know. But it is interesting. The if I were to compare the the far right and far left, the far right, their racism is is based in nationalism. The far left, it's in absolutism. Right. You know, if you're going to refuse to vote for Biden because he doesn't behold every single thing you want when it's the only path to those things, you're accepting four more years of massive hardships for the most marginalized people in our country. So it kind of evens out in an odd way. Yeah, like last week, uh, Biden appointed, he needs a liaison to Congress. So he chose, uh, I think, an excellent choice, black congressman from Louisiana. Now, to get elected in Louisiana, you have to represent your constituents who might work for the oil industry. Indeed, they do. So he takes donations. And the Sunrise Movement just lit into it as, you know, a, a sellout. Now, I know that's what the Sunrise Movement, which is an extremely progressive environmental movement, that's what they do. Maybe people within their midst would say, if you're not holding absolutely everyone to account 100%, you're not being the Sunrise Movement. But in real life, it's like, come on, guys. This is a black politician who could be a very useful go-between between the administration and the House. You know, some per- get some perspective. Yeah. I mean, listen, you know, you can look at Georgia and say, we have to get John Ossoff and, and Raphael Warnock in. Mm-hmm. You know, in the South, they have to walk a very fine line. So, like, John Ossoff is like, I'm not for the Green New Deal. I'm not for Medicare for all. And my reaction is like, what? I thought he's our guy. But then the truth is, unless we get them in, we'll never, we won't get the Green New Deal. Sure. He's the key to it. Yes. He's the key to making healthcare more accessible to people and everything, you know, even if he doesn't embody all of it. Yeah. Um, I think it goes under-remarked how you used to essentially do all your comedy in a character and then, yeah. and then you stopped doing it. And if that character had a different name or a different look or just dressed differently, we'd all say, oh, Sarah Silverman has abandoned her character. Like Paul Rubens is no longer Pee Wee Herman. But something like the only other analogy I could think of is, you know, Steve Martin stopped doing the wild and crazy guy. And it was pretty apparent he's still Steve Martin, but he stopped doing that. But did you just go from doing that character to 100% not doing that character? Was it a clear-cut change or was it gradual? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I know that, uh, you know, well, well I, I did my first special, Jesus is Magic, was all in character as myself. And then the Sarah Silverman program extrapolated on that. So, I, you know, it was this very kind of Bugs Bunny-ish... Um, arrogant 
yet ignorant character. You know, it was funny before Trump. You know, it was absurdist. But I mean, I think everything I said, it was the opposite of what I meant. But the, I think unless the, to use a math term, absolute power transcends, you know, I, that, that's the key to it working. Right. I mean, this is a very unfunny way of breaking down comedy. No, no, no. It's great. I love um, it. The absolute value of your comedy. So it doesn't matter if it was that much negative. Put two brackets around it. What's the absolute value of what she's saying is what she's really saying. Yes. Right. Yes. It's good. You know, I mean, I think if, if people really thought I believed what I was saying, it would be disturbing. Yeah. And that's why like memes with uh, quotes can really get someone killed, you know? I mean, there's a, a pastor in Florida. I don't know who started the meme, but there was like a meme of me, it goes around, that is like a picture where it looks like I'm making a speech. Maybe it's a picture from the DNC, actually. Mm-hmm. But the quote is from Jesus' magic, which is all in character, and it says, I'm glad the Jews killed Jesus. I'd do it again, is, is like the quote they take which is part of a larger bit, of course, and is in character. It got me a lot of death threats. And then this pastor in Florida showed it and um, said to his congregation that killing me would be God's work and smashing out my teeth and killing me would would be God's doing. And I'm just like, someone's going to get me killed, you know? I don't want to get killed. I, I find that not romantic at all. You, know, <laughs> you stand I, against you know. that. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, but that stuff keeps happening, and, and it just feeds into all the misinformation that people get power or, on the Facebook side, make tons of money through misinformation through, because it, it's, it causes rage, and rage causes clicks, and clicks cause rage, and it just goes over and over again, and they sell ads. Yeah. It's freaking crazy. Rage is such a powerful force and clicks are so small and pathetic. And yet that's how it's monetized. Did you did you start doing the kind of comedy you're doing now from that kind of comedy for entirely artistic reasons? Or was some of it that politically you wanted to say what you wanted to say? Or maybe even it just got to be a drag that people were getting it wrong so much. Well, I'll tell you what happened. No, it, it, none of those really... My first special I kind of got famous from, and then it was like um, a lot of my comedy was shock mm-hmm. and surprise. Yeah. And so then I had a kind of, what's it called, identity crisis, you know, because I had to write new material, but where do I test it out? At, you know what I mean? Like, and, and I need to, I wanted to please the audience, and now their expectation was surprise, so I had to surprise them, but then if I do that, then I'm giving them what they expect, and then it's not surprise, and then finally I had an epiphany that just comedy dies in the second guessing of your audience, and that I have to be brave enough to start from zero and bomb a bunch and figure out who I am now and and what's funny to me now. And so, you know, after each special, and I don't do a lot of specials. I've done three in 25 years or whatever. Whenever I'm doing starting a new set, I just, I go up and I eat shit, yeah. you know? I mean, if one thing works, great. I've got one thing. I build on that. And I have, you know, the audience, you know, there's nothing like the audience going, oh, my God, Sarah Silverman, and then being like, huh? <laughs> But, you know, and I think a lot of comics just, they need, they just want to kill, they're too afraid. 
and they don't write or progress or change. They become kind of caricatures of themselves. And I think that's the biggest bravery in comedy is going back to zero and starting over and being willing to lose the people that love you now and or maybe they grow along with you or they don't. But you got to do it or that the alternative is not for me. Sarah Silverman has a new podcast out. It is the Sarah Silverman podcast. You know her from such political conventions as the Democratic National Convention. Sarah, it was great talking to you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. It was great talking to you, too. And now the spiel. Yesterday, there was a Danish study published that showed that mask wearers get only limited protection from COVID by wearing their masks. In the study, 2.1% of non-mask wearers got COVID, but 1.8% of mask wearers got it. So a mask might lower you a little bit. It's about a 20% lowering of the risk, which isn't nothing. But then again, if you look at such low numbers uh, of either masked or not masked that actually had COVID, you couldn't say for sure that it offers even a 20% boost in protection. Well, so what? Right? Because I read this story and this study and said, okay, that's good to know. There was some recent contra studies that indicated that masks could protect the wearer. And I'm not talking about N95 masks. I'm talking about even cloth masks. And certainly it would be good if masks did protect the wearer. But obviously, and I think we all know this, that masks aren't for the wearer, therefore everyone else. I also read a few comments, an editorial criticizing the study. There was one written by Thomas Friedman, who was the head of the CDC for eight years under Barack Obama. And he found some problems with the study that seemed plausible. One is that they found out who had COVID by testing for antibodies and antibodies do have false positives. There's about a 1.5% false positive rate. And if you work the numbers, it means that maybe their findings that the masks don't work, maybe that is the incorrect study just based on false positives. And also it is a Danish study. And as Friedman notes, the daily incidence of newly confirmed COVID-19 cases in Denmark was roughly a third of that in the UK and a quarter of that in the United States. So why should that play a role? What does it matter? Because a rate's a rate. And we're talking about a study that showed the difference in rates between the masked and the unmasked. Why does it depend on the amount of COVID in the population? The thing is, it might. Uh, I'll make an analogy. Let's say you're doing a study on the effectiveness of umbrellas versus raincoats and hats. Well, you might get one result in a steady rain, but you might get a different result in a monsoon. And there might not be a 20% premium on the mask wearer, it might be 40, might be 60, or it could disappear altogether. I mean, the Danish study does sound to me, seem to me to be a well-conducted sound study. And it does throw some water on the idea that seem promising, maybe it isn't as promising as we thought, that masks greatly help the user, okay? That said, Fox News was extremely irresponsible. It's going to shock you in how they portrayed this study. They love items like this, so that they can have a slender reed to hang their skepticism on. And from that slender reed, they can build a narrative of disinformation. So they had frequent Fox guest and mask skeptic Alec Berenson on. He was a guest on Laura Ingram's show. They covered this mask study 
like a college football coach is masked on the sidelines, which is to say they covered it not well at all. What should we take away from this? Uh, what we should take away is that masks are basically useless as a protective measure. I mean, there wasn't much doubt about that before. There'd been uh, a very good meta-analysis done uh, several months ago that was published in the CDC journal that suggested that. But this study um, is was randomized. It had several thousand people. And it essentially showed that wearing masks does not protect the wearer at all from the coronavirus, not from the flu. This was done, uh, you know, this spring in Denmark, and it was done with the coronavirus. It was a very, very well-designed study. And frankly, if a drug company was produced, was, uh, had a drug in trials that, uh, that, you know, that had this trial result, they would discontinue development of the drug. Well, if the drug was designed to cure a disease, maybe, though I don't think masks have the side effects of drugs, but if the drug was used to stop the transmission of a disease, then you would keep telling people to use it. Because the science on that is so very clear, and I'll say it clearly and plainly. The proper use of masks has been documented, well documented, to stop the spread of the novel coronavirus to others. All right? You got it. I know you understood it beforehand, but I said it quite plainly. Let us now see how Laura Ingram communicates this vital, life-saving point to her audience. The, the Twitter scolds are, are tweeting today saying, oh, well, it, it, we've said it only protects, it's for others, not for you. Ah, she does it with mockery, with the whiny voice. This is becoming quite a common tactic between whiny bitch and dumb guy, but the mask provides protection to prevent the spread of large airborne droplets being expelled from the patient's mouth. So between those two rhetorical techniques, there is almost nothing that can't be disproven. Oh, add the faux scary vowel elongation. Ben Shapiro does this a lot. Like he's mocking someone who's worried about Jewish influence. And he says, ooh, the Jews. So scary. The Jews. Or Rudy Giuliani does this. Here's Rudy upon hearing that the election was called for Joe Biden. Who was it called by? All the, oh my goodness, all the networks. Wow. All the networks. We have to forget about the law. In the case of Shtick v. Facts, Shtick wins in a press conference outside Four Seasons Landscaping. But a killer mockery game doesn't make you correct. Might even indicate you don't have that strong a word-based argument sans the mockery. All these so-called carbon monoxide experts saying, don't run your car for hours on end in an unventilated garage. Oh. Can you stand these people? Don't depend on a navigation device that uses the internet while hiking in Denali National Park. I mean, who are they? They can't be right. Many years ago, I interviewed Laura Ingram, who had just written a book called Shut Up and Sing, criticizing celebrities for their political opinions. At one point, she mocked Steve Van Zant for using the phrase, I'm not a fan of Saddam Hussein, but, and it went on to actually raise a good point, who says that? Not a fan of Saddam, Ingram asked in the book and in our interview. So I played her the following tape. Stay tuned for her reaction. There's a large population of Shia. Uh, that is, no fans of Saddam Hussein in Baghdad. They could uh, revolt. I mean, that's Donald Rumsfeld, as I'm sure you know. Ooh. Ooh. I, I, <laughs> I mean, not a, whatever. Quite a repost. Touche. But at least she had a man of science on her show this time to parry about 
the idea that masks do work to prevent COVID spread. I'll say it again. Masks do work to prevent COVID spread. But of course, the reason why they work depends on the mechanics of how the cloth or other fibers would interrupt expulsion of the virus. This is called source control. They have source control, stops things at the source, stops the virus, stops the cough, stops the aerosolized droplets from spreading. So let's see how Berenson describes this process to the Fox audience. But so if, if the virus right, right. can't it, get but, through but to you. Real, there's not really uh, evidence of that. That's right. right. If, if the, why would you think this works one way and not the other? Now, there's a sort of a complicated, there's a lot of complicated mechanistic stuff here. Mechanistic. Does he think that's a synonym for fictional? There, right there is the opportunity to give an answer. Or you could just mock the question. Ready for the unbelievably complex answer that he couldn't expect anyone without a PhD to understand? He could have said, well, you know, masks work as source control because they prevent larger expelled droplets from evaporating into smaller droplets that can travel farther. Get it? And if you wanted to really go for it, if you cared about educating the audience, you might make an analogy. You know, if I shoot off a fire extinguisher and at the exact point of expulsion, I place, I don't know, a dinner plate right in front of it, it will stop the spread. But if I'm standing over on the other side of the room holding a dinner plate and you spray me with the extinguisher, I'm still going to get soaked. But of course, that would engage more in explanatory journalism as opposed to mockery, and mockery is a lot more fun. I mean, I don't know, if he just loves the mockery voice, maybe he could give the accurate information in the voice. Because masks prevent larger expelled droplets from evaporating. No, that doesn't work. That's the worst of both worlds. That's very confusing. There's so many ways to accurately communicate, but you know, it takes a little bit of effort. But there are really almost effortless ways to miscommunicate or to communicate mistruths. And once that communication airs on America's most watched cable channel, it is hard to correct it. So you've got to stop it at the source. But to stop it at the source, it's just a mechanistic process. It's so complicated. I would put it this way. Just be honest. Or, counterpoint to that, I shall quote, I think it was either Cicero or Maya Angelou who said, whatever. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly produces the gist. She will often blow her nose in a very complex mechanism called a Kleenex. Now, she figures there's no difference between using the Kleenex at the point of the nostril versus sneezing snot into the air and hoping to catch the mucus by walking around the room and waving the Kleenex in the air. But you know what? She plays along to get along. Daniel Schrader, gist producer, notes that Rudy Giuliani's Kleenex game indicates that he is a free thinker. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcast. She says if she wanted to hear about a young Jewish girl from New Hampshire who used to wet her bed, then she'd listen to the floor speeches of Senator Warren Rudman, who is in fact two of those things, not saying which two. The gist. It's like those insufferable, hectoring know-it-alls. So I say right now, shut up. I am getting in a land war in Asia. And that's final. Oompoo, deppoo, deppoo, and thanks for listening.